This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm pleased to welcome you to Dialogue Gospel Study for August 28, 2022, with Stephen Ricks, who will be exploring Psalms with us today. Other board members, Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, are also helping out in the background today. If you're new to Dialogue Gospel Study, please check out previous lessons, which are all available as podcasts and videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find more than five decades of the journal's scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. You're invited as well to support the work and vision of Dialogue. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Faith and curiosity and awe continue to guide the work we do. Find out how you can help to create a fund that secures the next 55 plus years of dialogue at givetodialogue.com. If you're with us uh, today live on Zoom, Please post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. Folks turning, tuning in on Facebook Live can also post their thoughts, and we'll try to follow along and keep up there. Stephen Ricks, a fellow child of the late 1960s, is a professor in the BYU School of Music, where he currently serves as Composition and Theory Division Direct Coordinator. He holds degrees in composition from BYU, the University of Illinois, and the University of Utah, as well as a Certificate of Advanced Musical Studies from King's College, London. He currently lives in Provo with his wife, Laura, who works in the Dean's Office of the BYU College of Humanities. They have two sons, Max and Jack, and two cats, Fabian and Pepper. Steve mostly writes music for chamber ensembles or soloists that often includes electronic sounds and that occasionally incorporate theatrical elements. Uh, more information and links to several examples are available at his website, stevericks.com. He currently serves in the Oak Hill Second Ward as primary chorister. That's a lucky group of kids. Uh, as, as with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, Brigham Young University, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. Our opening prayer today will be offered by Emily Holsinger Butler. Originally from New York, Emily attended BYU, served a mission in Brazil, and somehow obtained a law degree from the University of Virginia. Uh, she currently lives in Provo, is the eldest of seven children, and has three of her own. Emily is retired from the practice of law and focuses on keeping her children alive. Although more than that, thriving in in the in the way that uh, 21st century teenagers thrive, uh, she also writes books, uh, some of which are published. Find out a little bit more about Emily and some of her books at emilybutlerbooks.com. Music, of course, will be integral to today's lesson. Uh, uh, Steve will run the show on that, and so we'll simply start uh, with prayer. Our dearest Father in heaven, Father, we're grateful to gather on this day as brothers and sisters and friends. We thank thee for the life of thy son, Jesus Christ, and for his gospel, and ask thee for wisdom and desire to be good disciples. Now we ask thee to bless our brother Steve with abilities beyond his own, that he might, through his unique life experiences and his interactions with thy word and thy spirit, teach a beautiful lesson. We say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, Emily. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rebecca, for inviting me. Um, uh, Re Rebecca and I have a child that's the same age, and I think that's initially what brought us together and then have crossed paths at BYU and other places since. Emily and I go way back. I met, met Dave and Emily in... 1999 in London when I was uh, obtaining aforementioned certificate <laughs> at King's College London. And then as it turns out, they showed up here in Provo in the same, in the same stake in, in my neighborhood uh, many years later. And so it's been great seeing them and our, our kids know each other now. And it's anyway, 
and and Emily and I, I I turned to Emily as a known wordsmith to help me uh, with some uh, children's song lyrics I've I've done a couple times. So um, that's that was fun as well. Um, well, I'm humbled to be here today to talk with you. I feel a little out of my element. I was telling Rebecca I'm not uh, my my own. The two connections I can claim to dialogue are that I recently finished Christine Haglund's book on Eugene England. Uh, which will have to serve as an introduction to Eugene England's essays and work because I have yet to read word one of any of them, but I certainly have heard a lot about Eugene England, and I'm sure, no doubt, as a BYU faculty member, uh, owe a lot to him and his legacy for for things going on at BYU and in in other academic circles and whatnot. Uh, and then I. Um, before today's lesson, took a took a few minutes to hang out with my friend Michael Hicks, uh, a former professor and colleague and and friend who's you know had a big impact on me and my, on my life and certainly my my view of and and experience of music. So um, I was interested to kind of talk through some things with him, get his take on some things, and so a, a lot of the quotes and ideas I'm sharing. Right off the bat here, uh, are, he shared with me, and uh, he's someone who's, you know, contributed to dialogue throughout the years uh, many times. And I think even when Christine Hagland was editor, he, he was a guest editor for a music issue some years ago. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. Let me, uh, I, oh yeah, I was supposed to start with an opening song. So let me share my screen and play this short um, arrangement of I Am a Child of God by my friend and colleague Neil Thornock, an organist and composer. And this is him performing a kind of nice, nice little upbeat arrangement of that song. And uh, I've got some, uh, per Emily's suggestion, a lovely uh, clip art of children of the world to, to, to look at while we listen to this arrangement. Ah, okay, making sure I start from the beginning. Here we go. Okay, guys, sorry, just seeing uh, Eric Ringer's comment there. Dang it. Mistake number, the basic mistake. Okay, I'll be sure to, to do better with the audio next time. Um, so I must not have, I did, I thought I did click share sound. So, hmm, we'll have to uh, investigate to see. If there's something I need to do to make the sound a little a little better for the next example, well, let me launch in. I want to start with three quotes 
that kind of get us thinking about the connection between words and music in a certain way. And this is really, to me, what the Psalms suggested and what I want to focus on and talk about. I will maybe make reference to at least two of the Psalms in the Old Testament, but other than that, it's mostly going to be other materials and actually playing some music as much of it as I can get through in the time we have. So um, let me share my screen again. And uh, I do have sound selected. So let's see if when I come to play another musical example, I might just do a little test and make sure. So one of the things I talked about with Mike Hicks when we, we hung out was were these lectures at Harvard by uh, Leonard Bernstein. And this particular excerpt, which I suppose I'll read, this is from the first lecture. I've often thought that if it was literally true that in the beginning was the word, then it must have been a sung word. The Bible tells us the whole creation story, not only verbally, but in terms of verbal creation. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament. He created verbally. Now, can you imagine God saying just like that, let there be light, as if ordering lunch? Or even in the original language, yehi or? I've always had a private fantasy of God singing those two blazing words. Yehi or? I don't know. That was my uh, off-the-cuff performance of that, uh, let there be light. Um, Now, that could really have done it. Music could have caused light to break forth. Uh. Bernstein goes on to say, you know, talk about how, well, all I've done by just seeing those two words is mostly just expanded its length. There, there's more I could do, right, to sort of animate that text and add more to it. But I wanted to share um, a couple of quotes from a composer, Martin Boykin, here, that, who, who invokes aerial songs from The Tempest. Uh, to, to talk about how uh, setting text to music really changes it, has an effect on it. So after presenting a, in, in this book of his called um, Silence and Slow Time Studies in Musical Narrative, he, he presents initially a lot of different musical examples from different composers showing how they set text, how they sometimes paid attention to the natural rhythm, or emphasis of the text and how often they didn't necessarily and how how adding adding music or setting a text to music kind of in some ways can undermine, you know, the the clarity and what's presented when you're just talking or speaking. Um, So then he says, I'm starting just a couple sentences into this first paragraph I've got here. Here, why don't I make it a little bigger too? Uh, What my examples show is not an indifference to poetry, but rather a deep understanding that a vocal setting cannot be compared to the way we read or speak a text, because language suffers a sea change as soon as music is added. Consider that a text is sung far more slowly than it is spoken. And even where the musical tempo is fast, we have the impression of speed. The words move at a rate which we would find intolerable in conversation. And this is the crux of the matter. Music has a different time frame from ordinary language, so that the slow unfolding of text in a song alters the way we experience it. And then a little bit later, he says, I'll just read this other paragraph. It is not exactly a novel idea that the best texts for music are the simplest. Composers have not or have always been advised to avoid poetry with complicated syntax or involved intellectual frameworks. But from the beginning, they have ignored this advice. We shall go on ignoring it. If we are moved by a poem, even a complicated one, we shall set it. Inevitably, there is a price to pay. Every composer knows that if the job is properly done, and if the music affects its sea change on the text, it is hardly possible to go back to the poem again and read it purely as a poem. And then a third quote, and then I want to play a musical example. This third quote comes from uh, Johann Sulzer, a Swiss aesthetician, philosopher from the 18th century. And this is from a treatise near the end of that, near the end of that century, 
Uh, I think we can associate this with the Enlightenment, and it kind of expresses maybe some ideas that are that are there at the time, but that echo earlier ideas, and that maybe even some of us feel today. Um, I'm going to start in this this quote where it says, "Nature, nature has established a direct link between the ear and the heart. Each emotion is expressed by particular sounds, each of which awakens in the listener's heart the original experience that gave rise to it." A cry of terror terrifies us. Joyful sounds awaken happiness. The cruder senses, smell, touch, and taste affect the body, not the soul. They arouse nothing but blind pleasure or displeasure. Their energies are absorbed in enjoyment or evulsion. The visual and aural senses, however, affect the spirit and the heart. So this idea that sound and and music kind of communicate directly with our heart, with our soul, our spirit, is something that I think a lot of us feel and experience. And so in terms of thinking about like what happens to a text when it's set to music, I think I'll just mention uh, three things that aren't, uh, aren't exhaustive per se. And maybe some of you after we listen to this excerpt will have other ideas, but Number one, it usually slows the text down. That's a very simple, basic thing, but it's something that alters our perception of the text, our experience of the text. Number two, adding that music and sound to it is adding elements to that text that I think have a greater ability to speak directly to our our spirit and our heart and our senses. And exactly how that happens, maybe it varies from person to person, maybe it varies from piece to piece, but I think there's something very powerful there. And I think there's kind of a complex relationship between music and sound and the text that's being set. In some cases, composers are very particular to do something we might call text painting or trying to, you know, clearly articulate the meaning of the text or the emotion of the text in the music itself. In other cases, that relationship maybe isn't so clear or isn't so intentional. It's just um, a vehicle for this text to be presented in a new way. And maybe in some cases, there's even a kind of dissonance between the sounds and music we're hearing and the meaning of the text, which could also create a very interesting and complex uh, experience. What I'd like to do is stick with uh, the Bernstein connection here and turn to the second movement of Chichester Psalms. This is a piece, when I was in grad school at the University of Utah, I sang with the Utah Chamber artists for about a year and a half or so. Uh, Barlow Bradford directs it, and um, I sang this piece with that group. Uh, It was my first introduction to the piece, and um, other than West Side Story and I think a piece of band music I played as an undergrad at BYU, I I I don't know a ton of Burnside's music. So this was my first introduction to this piece. And I just remember spending a ton of time on the, uh, you know, the pronunciation, uh, Lama Ragasha. I think we spent, you know, like hours trying to get the pronunciation right, but also the diction clear. And so we could really do it as fast as we were supposed to. But what this movement does is kind of an interesting thing. It's a setting of Psalm 23, maybe, you know, probably the most familiar Psalm of all of them. And there's many settings, and maybe you know, you, you know, you have your favorite. Uh, hopefully, if you've heard this one, it's not it's not too redundant. Or if you haven't heard it, it'll be interesting to you. But he pits that against the first four verses of Psalm two, which have a clearly a very different tone, right? Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing, etc.? It's kind of like in contrast to the kind of God that we're turning to to be our shepherd and. And so you'll hear how he sets these two psalms in two very different ways. I don't think there'll be any question to you as you listen where Psalm 2 starts. And it's about five minutes, but let's let's give this a listen. Now, maybe what I'll do is I'll just play it for a couple seconds and then press stop and, and just try to check with some people to see if hopefully the sound is is okay. I have clicked share computer audio with this. And I will just double check that. Um, yeah, the sound output is going through the Zoom. So this should work, I hope. 
Um, let's give it a try. What do we think? Thumbs up? Okay. Let's hear that. Let's hear that harp strike again and we'll just listen to this whole thing. So what I say, it's about five minutes, 30 seconds. Hang in there. If you need to take a nap, rest a little bit. I've got the word, I'll have the words will stay projected there and you can kind of follow along. Here we go. I'll keep it going. Just one sec. Let me try this.
So, I don't know. I wonder if there's any reactions or thoughts from um, any of those quotes or that piece. Uh, just about music and how maybe the setting of a psalm like that changes our perception of it, or what, what does it do to the text? Anyone? Am I allowed to ask questions like that, Rebecca? Remind me. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and any of these folks that are that are panelists, so Emily and Christian, if you want to go ahead and feel free to jump in too with this, and then we'll also follow along with chat. Um, I'll I'll start by saying, um, you know, I'm really thinking about the the kind of intentionality that's possible with like that that comes through when it's paired with music. Um, Yesterday, I had the opportunity to uh, virtually attend um, the funeral for Kate Holbrook, um, and um, and so many great messages. And I'm I'm still kind of thinking about her daughter Amelia, talking about how Kate, um, you know, many of us <laughs> kind of see the the grace and. Um, and uh, confidence that she exuded uh, in interacting in the world, but she talked about how that doesn't capture the the kind of intentionality and the work that she put into um, kind of honing those um, those talents and those virtues. And, and I'm and I'm so I'm thinking about this kind of work and intentionality in kind of creating. Um, goodness in the world and bringing out, highlighting different um, kind of meanings and uh, and that kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, intentionality, so maybe the ability of music and sound to sort of highlight or focus on particular places or parts of a text. Yeah. So that contrast as we're coming into the, the rage, right. (laughs) Um, Of the second Psalm, you know, it's really, it's really, you know, intentionally highlighted and captured and, um, and brought out in a way that you don't get just reading, just reading the text. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much for that. Any, any other thoughts? From the panel, yeah, maybe this is the same intentionality question, but I've had the same that kind of thought, and it happens with Bernstein's work as much or more than anywhere else. That the the tempo, the mood, the choice to repeat words or to contrast lines is feels like the composer feels like the the music is doing an interpretation is communicating um and adding a later layer that is a a a layer that is an interpretation and i guess do you do you think about that when you're composing when you're uh, putting words to music um I'm interested to hear Christian's response. Do I think about it? Yeah, certainly. And then there are times when I don't think about it, and I think it's inevitable. You know, I mean, it's like it's the notion that you can't escape yourself, you know, and you can't, you know, I, I think it's probably impossible to create generic, you know, generic music that wouldn't respond to a text in some kind of personalized way. But maybe... Christian Asplund will refute what I've just said. Let's see what he thinks. Well, I, you know, I sent you that email where I described my process and um, um, I've been dissatisfied with a lot of uh, text setting, uh, to be honest. 
and I approach, um, uh, I try to be a little bit neutral when I set texts and I try to um, let the text speak to me or sing to me. And I listen to the colors and the rhythm of the text. And so my songs tend to be quite a bit shorter than most uh, people, most composers. The, the, the way that I was trained, the way that most classical composers set texts is to stretch things out a lot and to repeat things. And um, I, I'm a little bit influenced by a couple of things. Robert Ashley, this composer, American composer who wrote these sort of operas that um, are literally the opposite of that, have very, very wordy. And uh, instead of having multiple, you know, melismas, multiple notes per syllable, they'll have multiple syllables per note or maybe a whole song on a single drone. And I'm also very influenced by uh, liturgies of, of uh, non-Mormon religions, Catholicism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, that um, have songs that um, we might not call them songs, but... Um, musical settings of uh, very wordy texts in which um, the music uh, is not trying to, um, you know, uh, heighten necessarily individual words or phrases or try to, uh, to me that sometimes is redundant. And instead, um, it's this idea of giving this musical setting for the words to do what they do. And um, so that's, that's, I mean, I'm not saying I don't ever do songs with short, you know, texts, but, you know, I'm thinking of, again, in, in Catholic liturgy, you do have the, the um, curies, which are very few words, and then these long settings, although some of them are very short, and then you have uh, other, you know, prayers and such that are chanted. And, um, but that's, that's kind of me, but I, I, I still, I love, you know, settings. I love the, that Burns. I don't love all of Bernstein's music, but I like this, um, set. And, uh, but it's just my particular thing is I, I feel like, um, especially if a text is a good one or an evocative one that I don't want to get in its way. I don't want to put a new spin on it. I want it to spin me. Steve, yes. I, have, I have a comment too, even though I'm not on the panel. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm I'll, a, I'll allow it. Okay. Thank you. This one quick time, but I think we will all be able to relate to this. So I'm a, I'm a singer and I'm a teacher of voice. I teach voice lessons all day um, and listen to students sing. And the thing that's, um, that's so wonderful about speech going to singing is in speech, there is vibration, there is pitch, there is all of these things that's already helpful. We know, we know the, um, the science behind chanting and humming and things like that. When you add full vibration to it with our own voices, we're in tune with our entire body. And whether we're standing or sitting, we're in connection with the earth as well. And those vibrations bring us closer to God, they heighten our emotions, and they can bring us closer to people around us as well. So adding singing does make that also very palpable physical difference. That's what that's my non panel comment. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa. That's Melissa Heath, Christian's wife. In a minute, we're going to hear her singing and Christian playing some of Christian's music. But well, yeah, what, what Christian said is a perfect kind of segue into me just sharing a couple more things and for us to think about it. Um, number one, when I was meeting with Mike Hicks and just chatting about this idea of the Psalms, he's, he reminded me, he's like, you got to flip this idea on its head that the Psalms are meant to be sung. All scripture is meant to be sung in the Hebrew tradition, right? And uh, and then he he shared with me this clip of uh, I think we we have we can thank COVID for it. It's of a young man in Denver's bar mitzvah service uh, that was live streamed on Facebook, and it's 
you know, for someone I've actually, you know, I've never attended a bar mitzvah. I, I, I wasn't aware. I kind of was generally aware of what it might be like. But there, there's a really nice, I think, concise uh, introduction by the rabbi that, that's very illuminating. And then you, uh, so, so I've captured just a short clip of this service with the rabbi introducing the bar mitzvah and talking about how this young man's going to come up and what, he, what he's going to do. And then uh, just the very first little interaction between some some people that start a blessing and then hand it off to him, and he's reciting from the Torah. But as you'll hear, he's singing the Torah, essentially. So let me try and share this. Hopefully the sound will work. And then from there, we're going to jump to these uh, Book of Mormon settings by uh, Christian Asplund. So let's see. Oops, I got to make sure that's highlighted on my desktop. And now share my screen. Man, apologies for a a tech hack like me that basically, Rebecca warned me, don't stream anything. So I'm like, okay, I got to record this video. What I think uh, those lovely coughs you were hearing were me yesterday, not realizing they were being captured as I was doing it. They were so loud. Okay, apologies for that. Um, But I love that example. And it's um, really bond to um well it, it's a reminder that music is such an aid to memory right and that's the whole thing i think with the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah and singing the scriptures it's like it's helping them remember it it comes from an oral tradition right where people didn't know and that's how they learned is by singing and how many of us you know we we experience the same thing right if i was to just say the first few words of a hymn i stand all amazed at the you know, I mean, you you would know exactly what comes next and everything, and you probably didn't spend any time thinking about learning that song, right, or those words, but it just it just happens. And so that's a very powerful aspect of music. But let's do this. Let's turn to uh, a modern LDS psalm uh, and uh, a modern setting, and I want to share with you... Uh, the setting of the a part of the Psalm of Nephi by Christian Asplund that's kind of part of a, a longer project that he's undertaken to set all the all the poetic uh, texts of the Book of Mormon. Christian, are you done? I'm kind of done. You know, uh, I, I set the ones that are... Uh, that were put in verse in that, you know, the Maxwell Center edition of the Book of Mormon. I sort of, actually not all of them, because some of them are not, uh, they're not musical enough, I guess. (laughs) They're a little too expository, even for me. Uh, So maybe, maybe I'll get to them. But then there are lots of uh, nice ones, poetic ones that, that weren't in verse in that edition. So maybe I'll go back and check those out. But yeah, I've written about, I don't know, 50, 60 of them. Okay. So I just, we're, this is only going to get us through five verses of that scripture, but I'm just going to play the first four movements of this. I've got the musical score to show you. And, and man, apologies if, if the sound is not up to snuff. I'm doing my best. Here's this long thing that Christian sent me, but he already kind of said it, so I won't read it with him sitting here, but just talking about his philosophy of text setting. Um, but it's we'll, we'll see if we agree with, uh, if we if we believe what he said about his text setting or not after we hear his music. Okay, here we go. So I'll scroll... Well, let's see. Let's maybe make this to fit a page, and then we'll just go along with it. Here comes the music. Thank you. 
So, what do we think with a text like that that's maybe really familiar to us or many of us, and we've read it many times? My guess is it's probably the first time you've heard it set to music. So, does it change your perception or understanding of it? Does it bring anything out in the text that you wouldn't have known or understood before, or maybe maybe as a point of emphasis, kind of like what, what Rebecca and Chris were saying earlier, are there, are there any sort of emphases that are brought out that, that are enlightening that it, because of that particular setting? That was amazing. Go, go, go ahead, Emily. <laughs> well, um, I usually need to, that's the first time I heard that and incredible. I always need to hear music at least two if not three times to really be able to figure out what I think but because I mean I'm a speed reader so of course that text I read almost in the blink of an eye listening slows it way way down and so it gives you a chance I can't experience anything spiritually that fast as fast as I can read it so if I'm forced to slow down I can feel a a spirituality that I wouldn't just with the book in my hand. Thank you. Yeah. And I, and I'm thinking about the different places where I was speeding up or like feeling more energy or slowing down in particular ways. And, and um, so like in one of the, I can't, I wasn't taking notes on which particular one, but the things of the Lord and there's like, 
as it's kind of slowing that down, but then those notes, and I don't know all the music terms, <laughs> you know, take you through like these different steps of the notes and you really, it really kind of captures and, um, and helps me kind of wrap my mind around like all of the variety of the things of the Lord. <laughs> um, Another kind of point I was um, really struck by was the on the encompassed about just just the energy. Like I have never thought about that scripture with that kind of um, sorry I'm... That, that kind of energy, <laughs> and it brought a very different um, kind of meaning um, to me and and meaning about like the encompassing nature of God. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a, I have a, maybe a contrast. I'm going to disagree. I, it's beautiful, powerful. I loved it. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree a little bit with Christian. There is, uh, it's dark and heavy, and feels like the way I read or the way I feel when I read those scriptures. But I'm aware of people wanting to take the rejoice, wanting to take the celebration kind of words and talk about these very scriptures like it's supposed to feel good. It's supposed to feel happy and light when you're done. And that's not the way they affect me, but that is an interpretation that I hear. And so I think there's there's a message in the setting. There's an interpretation. Whether you want to have it there or not, it's it's there. I mean, I love it because it happens to fit the way I read those scriptures and the way they affect me, even in text, in plain text. But um, but I think there's an interpretation there. I think there's a message that the, that the music has um, added or reinforced. Yeah, I I was sort of imagining well I I was I was planning to facetiously say oh isn't that great that we just heard that generic music by by Christian I'm so glad it, we can't even tell it's his music <laughs> so um I think I get what Christian's trying to say of maybe like staying out of the way of the text or, but, but I think what else, what the other thing you said, Christian is like letting the text speak to you. And, and maybe that, that happens in a very personal way, you know? So, so we can't avoid being individual about it, you know? But then again, I appreciate what Chris just said that it, you know, we, it's it's nice to have connections with others and and for you to have that experience of feeling like wow I'm connecting with the way that Christian is seeing this text by the way he's expressing it and that that connects with me it speaks to the way I experience the text as well and I think yeah it's it can be very powerful um, yeah any other there was a comment earlier um, from the chat. Um, growth occurs through tension. Written words can do it through cadence and rhythm, but we lose that in Psalms. Music is really well suited for capturing kind of some of this tension and contrast. And I'm thinking about that comment and and the kind of um, you know whether uh, and another comment about kind of just the myriad possibilities of different musical choices. Um, and, and that there is, when you set it to music, this kind of built-in built-in exploration um, and under, a, a kind of um, um, recognition that scriptures are to be explored and experienced um, on many different levels. Um, and, and that, I mean, that really comes out as I think about <laughs> these particular scriptures set to this particular. Um, music and and I and I'm also thinking about the readers and listeners and I'm a listener right in in this in this um, you know practice today as we're going through and thinking about you know what I'm bringing to um, to both the text and to the music um, and that be, that being part of of my experience um, with that. Yeah, well, um, 
I love what Rebecca, what you said about responding to the text or that that's, that that's part of maybe what we're doing when setting text. Let me just let that take me to a bit of a conclusion. Um, I mentioned, you know, my friend, Mike Hicks a couple times and this now I'm going back in a verbal direction. He's, he kind of started a, a project over two years ago of writing his own Psalms daily. <laughs> and so this is the Psalm from Saturday. There was another one this morning uh, and he's numbering them. So you can tell he's past the two year mark of every day writing a Psalm, which I think for him is just kind of a very general, um, you know, poetic poetic words with a spiritual tone. But uh, so, so I love this one from yesterday. I won't read it. I'll just let everybody read it for a sec. And then um, I asked them specifically, you know, do you, I'm, I'm assuming you have some that are particularly mentioning David's Psalms or in a, in a dialogue with David. So here's, here's one from early on back number 25 that I'll read. David sat on his porch, strumming his harp as he watched the lunar eclipse. When you play into night's ear, it replies. The reeds by the lake await your harvest. The sunset watercolors tell stories one can't read. Eclipse made David recall how his life emptied out for a girl. And what man's hasn't, he thought. Musicians think like that. Fingers stumbling, brains out of tune. God has rules for planets and musicians, but sometimes he forgets them. Jesus, they say, cried with a loud voice, but what he mostly said was inaudible. Cat-tongued, soaked in fog and brushstrokes. His songs were like that too, eclipse-ish. But David could hear them. His penitence was doing cover versions of Jesus' tunes. Even a man spoiled rotten by infatuation has a heart. Still, when he plays, he's only playing his bones, which bend with gravity or snap as branches do in the jet stream. With luck, he'll sleep like moonlight spilling on the desert till the next eclipse. Oh, the sky and its accomplishments. And then I'll just show you, here's, here's Psalm 150 by uh, Mike Hicks, which is in a kind of oblique response to the final Psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 150 which I'll read in just a minute. Uh, but in Mike's psalm here, you can tell he's kind of throwing references to the things like the symbols and the horn, horns and other things that are mentioned in Psalm 150. And so it, for those of you I guess you have to follow my kicks on Facebook to get these psalms. I think like three or four of them are going to get published, maybe in dialogue or Sunstone or something. They're, they're, they're forthcoming, and he shares them. And, and uh, so there's probably various ways. I should have checked with Mike a little more carefully to see if, if the people are interested. But I think there's some real beautiful gems in here and actually some to kind of Keep it going. Some people, uh, someone reached out to him and said, "Hey, I want to set some of these to music." So some of these are going to be set to music. Uh, but let's let's look at Psalm 150, which I'm inclined to think it's no it's no surprise or that it's inspired that this is the final psalm in the Book of Psalms. That this had some prophetic inspiration as the final parting message of the Psalms. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. What, of course, I love about this psalm is, um, and, you know, Mike Kicks could speak a little more specifically to this, so I'm 
paraphrasing his words, but you know, you you have, I think, in the Hellenistic influence on Judaism, this kind of sense that vocal music and and no offense, Melissa, vocal music is the highest form of music, right? And then it kind of goes down from there to instrumental music. And I think this song kind of challenges that notion to say that really any sound, any music can be used to praise the Lord. Maybe some of us, as we read this psalm, we're thinking of recent uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint handbook changes, uh, that maybe there's a little more openness to horns and even cymbals in church. Um, the church sometimes gets criticized for maybe being behind the times a little bit. I guess now, uh, you know, the church is coming more in step with 1000 BCE. So we're, we're getting there. But uh, the, uh, I, I love that. And I love the idea of praising God through any sound and any type of music, whether it has words or not. And had we more time, I had some other examples from uh, my colleague, Neil Thornock, and uh, a former student of ours, Esther McGargle, about some preludes and postludes and other organ pieces they've been writing that are just instrumental, but are meant to be worshipful and praiseworthy. And I'm sure all of us can think of many examples of music that doesn't have words, but that is is very powerful and inspiring to us. And I, I love the way that this psalm kind of uh, validates that, encourages that, um, maybe even commands it, you could say. So I, I leave these things with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you, Stephen, and we'll continue a little bit of the conversation and maybe hear some other examples um, after we officially close. Uh, we invite you back in two weeks for our next lesson uh, with another Stephen, Stephen Peck, uh, and our two Stevens, I think, have team taught together. Um, did you do that recently? No? Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I was... <laughs> I just took a glance at the chat and was looking at the reference to the Leonard Cohen song, which I almost played, but, you know, as you can tell, we, we were running out of time anyway. Um, yeah. Yes, the, the class, Steve Peck and I, we, we taught, the team taught a class in spring, and we're going we're gonna to do it two more times. So we're teaching it this fall and then a year from this fall. It's the, the title of the class is The Music of Birds and Humans, which is super fun anyway. Yeah. Yeah, we can all we can all imagine. Um, so so join us again in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, our closing prayer will be offered by Christian Asplin, um, who you've been introduced to through this conversation. He's a composer, performer, um, and colleague of Steve's in the composition theory division at Brigham Young University uh, from Canada. Uh, he and his uh, he has six kids and his lovely wife, um, who you've also had a chance to meet and to hear from, uh, is the amazing soprano Melissa Heath. Christian. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this uh, program and this gathering of, of minds and spirits over the ether. And we thank Thee for this topic of, of uh, music and words. And we thank Thee for the gifts of music and sound and language and uh, for the gift of Thy Son and the privilege to gather together in his name and we ask you to bless all those who are gathered to get gathered today to have a, a beautiful sabbath and week and we say these things in the name of jesus christ amen amen you've been listening to the dialogue gospel sunday study Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.